Welcome to Season 2 of Bright Now, a podcast about parenting and educating talented kids, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. I'm your host, Jonathan Plucker, the Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at CTY and Johns Hopkins University. At the end of Season 1, we asked you to send in your ideas for topics to discuss in future seasons, and you definitely responded. You sent in lots of great ideas. You'll see that we took your suggestions to heart and are covering those topics in Season 2. One of the most requested topics was on social and emotional learning, or what psychologists often refer to as affective learning. To help us begin to explore these topics this season, our guest today is Dr. Tony Szymanski. Tony is an associate professor of gifted studies at Western Kentucky University. Her work focuses on underrepresented advanced students, the psychological and social needs of these learners, creativity, and talent development. Tony, welcome to Bright Now. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, one one thing that uh, I think lots of parents are often concerned with um, are are these social and emotional issues that they see their uh, talented student dealing with. Um, I'm sure you get lots of these sorts of questions where a parent comes up and says, uh, you know, uh, my child's doing this. Is this normal? <laughs> uh, and sometimes I say, yeah, it's normal for every kid who has ever lived. And sometimes right. I say, yeah, that's totally normal for a uh, talented student. And sometimes I say, no, actually, that's different. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> Um, exactly. uh, so um, uh, just 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 to get us started off, I, I think one thing that's important for parents to understand um, are kind of how scholars think about this, researchers think about it, uh, and uh, and uh, in uh, particular, I'm thinking about the harmony disharmony hypothesis. Can you can you just talk mm-hmm. about that briefly? What that means when we when we're sitting around as uh, scholars talking about harmony disharmony? What what does that what does that really mean? Sure. So the harmony hypothesis basically says gifted students are superior in almost everything. Um, I like to uh, relate it to having a golden ticket. And so many times it's like, oh, you're gifted. Life will be easy. They'll be the perfect child. Everything is great. Disharmony is kind of the opposite end of things. It's, you know, oh, you're different. You're so different. Life is going to be terrible. You must struggle. Every existence is is you know, just overwhelmingly challenged. And so it's this, uh, this dichotomy kind of of everything is wonderful or everything is, is terrible and giftedness is the, the nexus, the centering thing that, that people look to as for an explanation. Based on your work, where do you kind of fall on this continuum? And I should say it's, people do talk about it as though it's two distinct worldviews, but it really is more of a continuum, Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that was something I definitely wanted to talk about. You know, um, I think we as researchers sometimes set up these false dichotomies. You know, it's nature or it's nurture. You know, it's uh, extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation. It's harmony or disharmony. And we know in real life, it's not, you know, it's both and. Right. It's, it's a continuum and, and people fall and move along that continuum based on where they are at that moment in their life. I think it's dependent on the individual, but I will say what my research has shown is that, you know, we think about intelligence, you know, in that bell curve distribution. And the more a person gets out onto those tails on either end of that curve, the more different from the average their life experiences. 
and that applies to social emotional as well as academics. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, are there specific social and emotional strengths that are associated with giftedness and high levels of um, talent sort of in general, regardless of where you are on that spectrum? I think so. Um, one, in my own research that I, I just actually completed, I looked in, and interviewed a number of people who were successful adults who are gifted and very intense. And so one of the things that came out really clear in all of my interviews were these people, as soon as they left their home environment and were surrounded by kids their age, realized they were different. Hmm. Immediately, whether it was three, four, five, they knew they were different. They spoke differently. They thought about things differently. They thought that different things were funny, you know? And so they, they had this communication awareness, you know, and, and so did the little kids too, you know, or their, their classmates, they, they would say, you know, one of the quotes was, why can't you talk like us? Why do you talk so weird? And so you might, you know, imagine it would be pretty easy to imagine that if you were having that experience as a young child, you know, you may start to think, wow, I am different. What is wrong with me? Mm. And gifted kids are smart enough that in the absence of information, they'll make something up. So the things that these people were able to come up with was um, they were aliens from another planet. And so that to me as a, uh, an education psychologist becomes a little bit alarming because imagine starting out life at five, having this secret that you think is something's wrong with you. So you, you definitely know something's different, but you don't have anything to base it on. You don't have that experience. You don't have anyone to even really talk about this and put a name to it. And I think it also points to the need for gifted programming, why it's so important to let gifted kids be around other gifted kids. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I think that's a really important point. Sure. Um, so one of my uh, kind of, I don't know, uh, armchair definition of a peer is someone who gets your jokes. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, when you tell a joke and you have to explain it, it's not funny. And if you have to do that a, a bunch of times, you just stop trying to tell jokes to that person. But someone who gets you, who finds the same thing as funny, who, who you can use the same vocabulary and you don't have to think about that, that's your peer. And so gifted kids need to be around their peers. As my colleague Julia Roberts states a lot of times, the strength creates the need. So this ability, this advanced vocabulary, this advanced um, intelligence and, and ability to learn things and think creatively creates the need to be around others who are like that and to be given opportunities to be challenged in order to to grow as a whole entire person, not just looking at the academics. Right. I, we, we often hear that um, from parents and students about uh, CTY programming. And I, I think anyone who works in programming for bright students hears it, um, is that when you say, you know, uh, what was the best part of it? It was, oh, I, I found my tribe. I am finally around people who think like I do, who like to talk about things like I do. Any sort of general social and emotional issues or attributes that are often associated with giftedness, sort of, you know, things that pop up, um, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, even, even things that aren't unique to a bright student, but that may, um, because they're so intellectually advanced, uh, it just sort of presents differently. Well, one of the things that we see fairly, fairly frequently when we talk about like the big five personalities, so the five aspects of personality, um, 
openness and conscientiousness are two that gifted kids um, tend to score high on. Hmm. And openness to new experiences, that kind of makes sense, right? As somebody who, um, who loves learning, who's interested in learning new things, would be open to new experiences and want to um, explore things. The conscientiousness, that one kind of depends, I think, on where a student is. Um, you know, we, we see the perfectionist students who might show up really high on conscientiousness. We also have those students, and I laughed when you said, is this normal? Because I think about especially middle school boys who <laughs> they have so much going on in their mind that being organized and conscientious, it's not that they deliberately aren't conscientious. It's just it, that doesn't even show up on the radar, you know. With my own, when they were slash are middle schoolers, uh, sometimes and they're, they're just they they are the most conscientious, bright students. And but then they'll just do something, and you just sit there and watch and go, wait, why did you do that? And they'll they'll look at you and they'll sort of scrunch up their eyebrows and go, huh, I have no idea. And then they just move on. <laughs> That's just a characteristic of being in middle school, I think. Um, like you said, there's so much going on in your brain. Um, and in your body with right, you know, right, hormones exactly. and Ugh. all of that stuff. Um, but you did bring up a good point, though, because teachers and, I, and parents, to some extent, we apply that harmony hypothesis to our kids. We expect them to be, and this is in quotation marks, good at everything. And that includes behavior. You know, um, other research I did, teachers said, you know, yeah, we expect better behavior from our honors kids. And you'll see that uh, quite a bit in teacher recommendations. They recommend the teacher pleasers, the well-behaved kiddos. Instead of stopping to think, and, and I'm quoting one of my people in my study, they said, just because we're learned fast, we learn faster, we're still just kids. And how often do we forget that? You right. know, because they can speak to us like an adult, but they're still 10. You know, and so these expectations of being good at everything, being good in academics, being good with peers, being good, and this is in quotation marks, in their behavior, that, you know, that expectation creates a lot of stress and pressure for gifted students. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have high expectations of the way they behave, but I think we need to make sure they're age appropriate. Now, you, you, you raised a really interesting point. You've raised several interesting points, but I, I, you, you just reminded me of a study. It was me uh, three or four years ago. Um, I think of it often because it was about uh, recommendation letters and mm -hmm. recommendation letters for uh, bright young women tend to emphasize how good their behavior is and doesn't talk about their actual skills and talents. Uh, letters for bright boys tend to focus more on uh, what their intellectual capabilities are and much less on behavior, uh, which is a very different read to those letters. And the implication was that that tendency tends to seriously disadvantage young gifted women. Um, so that's just mm -hmm. something for educators out there. Anyone who's writing recommendation letters, um, you know, don't confuse the talent with the behavior, right? which is your broader right. point here, right? Is that those are distinct things. They often line up. Uh, but we're all different people on different days, right? And we just need exactly. to we just need to keep that in mind that uh, life is a roller coaster. It's not you're not just ice skating <laughs> down this level level field. That's not how right. this works, right? And you know you you're making me think. Um, I don't know of all the states that recommend students based on leadership, giftedness, and leadership, but here in Kentucky, that is one of the areas, and that's interesting too because that's where a lot of teachers focus on the very well behaved student. And if we think back in history, 
a lot of people who we would now say are gift were gifted leaders were not necessarily well behaved. You know, they were the people I'm thinking Martin Luther King Jr., you know, um, other people who had who would exercise civil disobedience. We would not have called them well behaved, That's but they were point. definitely leaders. And so, you know, that that expectation, I think, really needs to be um, kind of reflected on and, and looked at, you know, what are we expecting our kiddos to do? And even this is a side topic, but even when we ask our gifted kids to help struggling learners, um, we expect that they'll know how to teach and know how to mentor and know how to get along with someone who is academically significantly different than them. And that to me is just crazy because, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort educating people on how to be teachers, how to teach content and how to um, differentiate for a lot of different readiness levels. But yet we expect an eight-year-old to pick it up and be able to be a good role model and demonstrate good study skills and teach someone who is significantly different than them on the fly. Yeah. If it were only that easy, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So something that that's kind of um, related to that, when we think about the strength creating the needs in the social emotional development, something that I think a lot about as a researcher is the development of resiliency and perseverance in the face of challenge. And how that kind of relates to the harmony hypothesis is if things always come easy to a student, if they're good at everything, where do they learn these skills? You know, where is that productive struggle, which is where everyone else learns how to how to overcome challenges? How to yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. That, that, that's. Um... Uh, that's a really good transition to talking about. I mean, you've done a, a great job of helping us understand um, how parents kind of need uh, to take a step back sometimes and manage their expectations um, for things like uh, social emotional development. Um, but I, I think I, I'd like to, if we could give parents two or three takeaways, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in what we would put together for them. I guess my first one would be, even if you believe in the harmony hypothesis, no one's harmonious all the time. And that's a good thing, which is the point that you just made, right? That mm -hmm. um, uh, life is difficult. Uh, being... right. No babies come home from the hospital with a golden ticket in the bassinet. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't happen. Right. Um, uh, it would be kind of nice sometimes if they did. But um, <laughs> it, uh, I, you know, I, life is difficult. And as a parent, you're not always going to be there. And they need mm -hmm. to be able to figure out some of these social, emotional solutions to problems they face, just like they do intellectually. And so I, I really think it's, it's, it's important when, you know, parents come up and say, oh, my child is dealing with this. It's like, yes, they will probably mm -hmm. deal with that the rest of their life. Uh, help them right. figure out how to learn how to do that. I, it's not, oh, my gosh, they have this huge problem. It's this problem exists in the wild. That's where you're releasing your child to. That's where we go. I, do you have other, yeah. uh, other things we can be recommending for parents? Well, one thing that a brilliant friend of mine who is a teacher of gifted students um, told me, and, and it just really resonated, especially with the little kids, is when they're going through something, maybe it's a temper tantrum, maybe they're just not responding in the way we think they should, look at their hands. You know, look at that tiny little hand, and then that might help us remember, oh, that's right, you are five. Hmm. So, you know, being whiny when you're tired is probably normal, you know, and sometimes just because you can talk and reason like a 10 or 12-year-old, you're still five. So take a look at their hands for that. 
Um, I also strongly recommend challenge them early and often because that's where they build those skills. The last thing in the world we want as parents is to have our child be challenged and dealing with failure, um, maybe freshman year of high school or of college when they're far away from home. You want to talk about high stakes then, mm. you know, they don't have any support system like they do at home. And the first time you fail a class or fail a test, now what? You know, um, their uh, whole identity know, uh, crumbles and all right. that stuff. I mean, I mean Tony, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it as much as I have. I, 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 I probably the first 20 years of being a uh, professor, um, I generally taught first semester freshmen. And um, it really is amazing how, how differently prepared students are to deal with being on their own and having to negotiate relationships and um, interpersonal conflict, intrapersonal conflict. Um, some clearly uh, ha- have, have really been helped out and they know how to deal with it and they just roll with the punches and they just thrive so quickly. But then you see others who are equally, if not more talented sometimes, who really do struggle with it because they've always had that hand held so, so tightly. Um, and uh, it, that's a really rough transition for lots of them. I think that's definitely something parents need to keep in mind. Sure. And par- as parents, you know, it's hard to watch your child hurt or, you know, watch them as they're heading for the brick wall. You know, you're like, there's the brick wall. You're going to hit it. You're getting closer. But at the end <laughs> of the day, we have to stop. And and sometimes that's the way they learn is by, by making that poor choice. And we have to... Um, really love them enough and and have enough confidence in them and and really that's what you're communicating to them is i have confidence that you can handle this you know of course you're there to lend support but really the message that we want to get to them is i believe you have what it takes to do this you know and something that i wanted to just touch on briefly is identity Hmm. and when a student's identity or a person's identity has been built around their high achievement the first time that they don't achieve highly they don't get that perfect score, they're not the best in the class, that can be devastating, not just academically, but you know, that draws into questions of who am I? And as researchers, we've seen that imposter syndrome, you know, maybe I'm not really gifted, maybe this was all just a, you know, a sham, and it can really damage um, a person. It can be really hard to get over. And so we as parents and as teachers need to remember that, you know, we're working with a whole person you know, not just focus on the academics and also allow them to fail. And, and that's not the worst thing in the world, whether it's in sports or academics. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. It, um, yeah, across all different domains. Um, and I, I, think, I think that's a really important point is that um, uh, uh, you can easily, a, a bright student sometimes can sort of, I don't want to say hide, but they can kind of live in a space where they don't face many challenges. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of students are like that. Um, uh, there may be a gender difference there, but I, I, I've seen it so many times, right? And it, uh, where they're not challenged and they're not pushed and they're successful and they look happy, uh, but that's not, that's not what life throws at you. Uh, life throws challenges at you. And so helping mm-hmm. your child, helping your students find that challenging space. They don't have to be challenged 
you know, at, at, at very high levels constantly. That's the exact opposite problem, right? Um, right. But uh, just finding ways that they can experience failure sometimes where they can experience success, but they really had to work for it. Um, uh, that's where they learn those things like conscientiousness, right? Right. That, you know, uh, one of the students I had, I teach a summer camp for um, underrepresented gifted kids focusing on math and this adorable little girl was being interviewed by the local news and they said well what do you what do you think about camp and she said oh or they said how do you feel and she said i feel really proud and they said why do you feel proud she said because camp is really hard we do hard hmm. work here she said but i feel proud because i can do it and go. boy what a isn't that the gift that we want to give our students and our children is to feel like yeah, this might be hard, but I can do it. And they only get that by facing hard challenges and overcoming them. That's the only way you're going to get that feeling. Right. Uh, pride in hard work successfully done is just about as good as it gets as a motivating factor. Um, let's, yeah, let's, let, let's, I'm sorry, Terry. Let, let's, let, um, uh, let's tie this up uh, by talking a little bit. We, we've talked about gender differences a little bit and how mm-hmm. um, a social-emotional strengths and issues may manifest differently if you're dealing with a gifted boy or a gifted girl. Um, uh, but what about things like uh, socioeconomic status, uh, student race, ethnicity? Do we know mm-hmm. much about, about how there may be differences there based on those factors? Well, we know about the underrepresentation. So simply, you know, uh, not having access to those opportunities can create issues. Um, a lot of my work happens in adolescent era areas um, where you're developing your identity. So especially uh, thinking about racial differences, developing what I've seen in my research is students are basically um, put in a dichotomy of you can be smart or you can be popular. You can be true to your race or you can act white, for lack of a better um, phrase. You know, so students are often, you know, who come from a lower SES or um, are culturally diverse, they're often added identity issues that they have to work through that um, middle-class Caucasian students don't have to think about. It doesn't even enter their mind. Um, also, access to programming and support you know, is an issue for them. Uh, Tony, this has been uh, fantastic. You've been a great guest. Thanks for all this helpful information. I, I think it'll be very, very useful to uh, parents and teachers of Bright students. Uh, thank you so much for being on Bright Now. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bright Now. Tell us what topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes by emailing your suggestions to brightnowpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy Bright Now, support us by sharing the podcast with friends on social media, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Bright Now is produced by Jonathan Plucker, Tracy Guerin, and Trisha Schellenbach. Audio production by Iris Starkangelo and the team at Clean Cuts, a three C's company. Our score was written by Austin Coughlin from Noise Distillery. Special thanks to CTY's Interim Executive Director, Amy Shelton. Bright Now is underwritten by the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, a nonprofit dedicated to identifying and developing the talents of academically advanced students worldwide. Find us on the web at cty.jhu.edu and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.